Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, Hidden Horror Gems. We asked more than half a million horror fans online what some obscure-ish horror favorites they have, because we're trying to like amplify our October leading up to Halloween watch list. I've been finding myself re-watching just a ton of favorites, which I seem to do every October, and even though I knew there were going to be a lot of votes for things that I'd already seen, um, I was hoping it would kick up some movies that were new to me, or at least movies that I could look at with fresh eyes from people giving passionate arguments about them, and man, did the answers come through. The problem is I now have too many horror movies to watch this month. I'm going to have to watch six a day uh, before Halloween strikes to get to all of these wonderful suggestions. So let's get to the good stuff. Out of all the thousands of votes and comments, the one that got the most, um, you'd call it like upvotes on Reddit, um, was Ravenous from 1999, a movie that somehow I had never, I'd never seen. Tom McDermott kicked off the voting on the Horror Weekly Facebook page by saying, Ravenous is one of my absolute favorite movies, and it's criminally underappreciated. Fantastic film by Antonia Bird, stacked to the rafters cast, gorgeous scenery, and one of the most spellbinding soundtracks out there. I know I'm a broken record about this one, but it really deserves so much more attention than it gets. If you love horror, you should check it out. But if you want strange folk horror with a great sense of black humor, you need to see Ravenous. Awesome way to start out the voting, Tom. And there were so many interesting, it was a great discussion underneath Tom's comment, which is why the page exists. It's my favorite thing in the world when it happens. There was a response to him from K.R. Furlan who said, yeah, absolutely ravenous. From what I've read, they took, wait, no, I'm sorry. That was his response to the response. What K.R. Furlan said was, Tom, as an in indigenous filmmaker, I am very pleased with the depiction of the Wendigo in this film closer to fact than Antlers and many other non-Indigenous films about the entity. It is the closest to how the spirit really works, still has many flaws, but does justice in a funny and bloody way. There were people talking about how great Antonia Bird is as a director. There was like a Robert Carlyle fan club that spontaneously sprung up in the comments. Just so cool to see. So I went in watching this movie cold, knowing nothing about it. And what an odd and tremendous movie Ravenous is. I'm going to have the best October if all the suggestions that I haven't seen are as good as this. It, everyone in the cast is incredible. The, the, the thing that jumped out to me was how kind of strange the tone was. And I did a little digging and discovered that there were a lot of problems with the production of this movie, a lot of controversy, directors dropping out and like people being uh, ever, too many people trying to have a say of like how the movie was going to come out. So the effect that it came out as such a unique piece is kind of like a semi miracle. But I think a big part of what makes this movie um, very unnerving is that it's tonally all over the map. It goes from, wild comedy to like laid back comedy to very intense bloody scenes and like extreme violence and then back to almost like a quiet it's it's like crossing the revenant 
with Shaun of the Dead and then adding in a dash of the Hannibal TV series. <laughs> what, what is this? But it's amazing. If you haven't seen Ravenous, it's from 1999, and the plot synopsis is, in a remote military outpost in the 19th century, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embark on a rescue mission, which takes a dark turn when they are ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. Actually, now that I think about it, there's a splash of Hateful Eight in this recipe, too. Um, Okay, so definitely uh, Robert Carlyle is what takes this movie from good to great or great to magnificent. Like I said, everyone in the cast is really good. David Arquette is great at basically like the Ted Raimi role. Guy Pierce is good as the hero. He was not, not the weakness of the movie to me. It was just for some reason he was boring through most of it to me um, compared to the other characters. Um, Jeremy Davies was awesome as Private Toffler. Uh, Neil McDonough was incredible as kind of like Guy Pierce's temporarily temporary hero partner. Joseph Running Fox was awesome, but Robert Carlyle playing. Um, I'm not going to do spoilers here. So Robert Carlyle playing uh, Calhoun. And then Captain Ives, this is the only mild spoiler I can't avoid, but it comes really early in the movie. Um, He does such a great job at basically playing like a Jekyll and Hyde type of character at first. And then it really one of the best horror villains I've seen in recent memory. There's such a quiet, confident menace to this guy and like a chess player's deep intelligence there's a really interesting underlying message to this movie or messages at the core of it, like power corrupting. And then the kind of like conquest as appetite ravenous had me from its bloody opening scene straight through to the, I'm not spoiling the ending, but just the kind of dual nature that you, the dual is in like, Pistols at Dawn kind of dual uh, nature of you where you kind of know this uh, movie is headed. Just spectacular. And then one of the most gonzo standout uh, music scores I, I can imagine. Just I feel like it would sort of drive me crazy if I was in a car <laughs> listening to it. Unlike a lot of scores where, you know, you know, John Carpenter just drops something for Halloween ends and you can just like play it in your car and drive for hours listening to it. But um, this one is fits the movie perfectly. Well, fits might be the wrong word because it's kind of jagged, but it, it definitely suits the movie. So thank you to everyone who voted for Ravenous. I loved it. Next, we're going to talk about a couple of documentaries. Um, documentaries are a passion of mine, and uh, we don't get to talk about them a lot on this podcast. So I got really excited about this. Um, there were some suggestions or votes for a documentary called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. It's from 2021. Now, let me tell you something. I know from the comments and the reviews for this podcast that because we're doing voting, that's kind of the framework of the episodes most of the time, we end up in list form. And it feels like 
you know, I, I could tell to some of you, like sticking your head in a fire hose of movie titles where you're like, oh, damn it. Now I got to add this to my watch list. I got to add this to my watch list or I got to go rewatch this or whatever. Um, this that feeling that you're having with this podcast, if you are, is the feeling I got from this documentary. Oh, my God. This documentary is packed with so much beautiful footage from so many incredible movies. It's a comprehensive look at the idea of folk horror, but it really takes an expansive um, view of what folk horror represents. Like it kind of starts with, I mean, they call it in the film, they call it the unholy trinity, which is Witchfinder General, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, and the Wicker Man. But they end up talking about Candyman and the idea of urban myths as kind of a folk. It's not just about whether you're in nature (laughs) to this documentary. It's about a larger idea of folk horror as like traditions, things that are carried on, like oral history. And it spans the whole world. It's like the Epcot Center of horror or whatever. I've never been to Epcot, but I'm guessing. Right. It's it's um, it, it really felt like by the time I was done watching it, I was a little tired. I felt like I'd been to like a 100 airports. And it also delves in a really smart way into kind of what's happening in society while horror movies are being made and, and how that impacts what kind. It goes into like the satanic panic. It goes into when witchcraft became more popularized. There's an incredible statement made by someone they're interviewing in this documentary where they say that witchcraft is the only religion the United Kingdom has ever given the world, which I'd never thought about in that way before, but is really interesting. And then also a lot about how female power is kind of represented for the first time as religious figures when witchcraft turned into like mediums and people started seeking that. Um, And most of the major figures, at least at the inception of the, the modern popularization of it were, were women in what amounts to roles of religious authority. So it's really smart. It's, it gives you just enough gorgeous footage and a taste of the movies it covers without spoiling them, which is a balance. I really appreciate that. Cause I screw that up all the time. I'm trying to give people, especially when we do episodes like, um, you know, things that are underseen or underknown, uh, I'll try to not spoil it, but I don't have the, the balance that they have. They do a really good job of it in this doc. And then the other thing I appreciate is I like when, uh, people who are making something like a documentary have, a, 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 a message or like a thing that they unifies a through line to what they're trying to bring to it. And in this one, they're really talking about how folk horror is kind of universal. It relies on um, really ancient beliefs being carried forward in time. And because the beliefs like go back to the very beginning of things, it tends to have a universal feel. A lot of times, like in Witchfinder General, for example, the entire country is out of control. And I really like that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in this episode because it was a strange thing that some of the movies um, had in common. But, you know, as I'm speaking to you, right, there's a 
uh, a possible land war about to break out, a large-scale land war about to break out um, in the Middle East. There's the first major land war in Europe since World War II, I think. There's a lot of anxiety about AI taking over, like, everything. There's a scale to the nightmarish scenarios that are presenting themselves lately. And I thought back to, like, you know, the days when we were afraid of Y2K or in the grimmest possible sense, something like 9-11. And as awful as those things are or could have been, there's a very localized nature to them. And now there's a sweep the planet sense, uh, climate disaster largeness kind of sense of the things that are causing the anxieties now. And, you know, even though this doc is, you know, a couple years back, I think it really put its finger on a kind of horror that's going to start becoming more um, popular or more um, produced where there's a more universal sense of it. And folk horror is a perfect genre to address those kind of things and always becomes more popular when there's like an overwhelming sense of fear. Speaking of overwhelming universal sense of fear, now we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorite documentaries I have ever seen. Here's a really brief clip from it. I, for one, felt that it was just devastating. Um, the bleakness and the, it was an eerie quality, you know. It was sort of like every horror story you've ever read rolled into one story. That is a clip from the documentary television event from the year 2020. And it's about the story of the making of, and even bigger than that, kind of the impact of all that about the movie The Day After. Now, you might be thinking The Day After isn't horror, and that's that's fine. I, let's just appreciate um, what this documentary is doing, even if you don't exactly agree with the definition. Recently did a post on the Horror Weekly pages that um, kind of said horror movies that aren't horror movies. And there were a lot of people when they saw that were talking about movies like Seven or even like Silence of the Lambs. But there was quite a bit of discussion about the day after and about threads. But the bigger thing here is what this documentary really shows is what a miracle it was that the day after ever even aired and how much resistance there was to it and how there was this core group of people determined to show America this movie despite, I mean, getting shut down. <laughs> we'll talk about it. It's amazing the resistance they come up with. But the amount of fear that built in the country about this movie, I mean, the American Psychiatric Association was issuing warnings to parents to keep their children away from the TV uh, on the nights or ultimately just one night that the day after aired. There were just wild protests. They couldn't sell commercials on the day after to any major companies. Amazingly, the major advertiser on the day after was Orville Redenbacher. And the day after ended up being watched by almost 70% of Americans watching TV the night it was aired. I mean, imagine two-thirds of the country all watching 
one thing at the same time. It doesn't happen. It, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's the last episode of Game of Thrones or whatever. There's no way to reach this large a share of people in America anymore. Not all at once. So Orville Redenbacher got an ad for $11,000 and reached more than 100 million people. Genius. So if you don't know what the day after is, it's it was an ABC movie of the week that aired in 1983 and showed the events leading up to, during, and after a nuclear strike, uh, mainly focused on the a community in a small town in Kansas. But Television Event is just a 90-minute documentary produced by... Um, and I think directed by Jeff Daniels, that takes us behind the scenes at this small group of people, uh, uh, a studio executive, uh, uh, a writer, a director, Nick Meyer, who directed um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, amongst a bunch of other stuff, who were just determined to get this incredibly grim movie made. There's an incredible um, cut at the beginning of the documentary where they show this ominous, like people just being rattled and shaken and depressed by the viewing of day after on their television screens. And then it cuts to, as the credits open, um, what the, kind of what the ABC uh, vibe was at the time, like the silly sitcoms and comedies and um, slapstick and what the movies of the week were. There were like incredible movies of the week back then with titles like, but I don't want to be married. And like a TV movie of the week about the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and now nuclear Holocaust. Why not? And you know, the people making this um, the, uh, honestly, this is part of why I want to talk about it on a horror podcast. Not just that the events depicted are horrible, but I really turn to the horror genre for rebellion. I, I like rebellious filmmakers and they tend to gravitate towards this genre. And these people really were rebellious. I, I mean, at the time they were making this movie, there was a poll done of Americans and 75% of Americans in 1983 thought there would be a nuclear war of some kind in the next decade of their lives. People were terrified by this subject at the time and doing like nuclear drills and insane things, but nobody was really talking about it. And it, more to the point of why I love this documentary so much and how I think the horror genre has, at least in spirit, something in common with it is they also gave there was one person, I forget who it was in the beginning of the documentary when they said, you know, everyone was telling you you're crazy to make this. Why? Were, what motivated you to make it? And a lot of them were trying to, you know, the director himself was pretty clear that he was trying to spark a discussion because he was scared by this, too. But this one of the producers, I think, said, you know. I didn't want everything we did on ABC to be just silly and shit. I thought, you know, I'm going to look back as like a 40 plus year old uh, man and be like, if that's all I did, um, I'm going to be really sad. I want to do good work. So it wasn't, it was about the aesthetic of it too, right? Not, you're not just making a message movie. You're making something really good, something really well done. 
And no offense to Texas, but that's hard to do on a movie of the week of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. But these people also knew going into it. I mean, he was, I think his name is Stu Samuels, and he was integral to this thing getting made. And he was like, you know, we thought long and hard, if you put something this grim into Americans' homes through their TV sets, you got old people watching who might, you know, have medical events because they get so upset watching it you might psychologically scar um young people like you're gonna hurt people he literally this is a quote from the documentary he's like we knew there was a possibility that we would hurt people we weren't taking this lightly we just thought it had to be made and had to be made well and hearing him say that just reminded me of interviews i've read or seen with like a george romero or a wes craven that they do really unpleasant themes, but they feel like they just need to come out. They just need to be made. And there are just amazing details in this movie. The The writer they ultimately got for The Day After was named Ed Hume. And he, um, he nailed this uh, first draft. He was like, this is the most excited I've ever been to write about, write anything. So he's like, I wrote it really fast and they turned it in and the, the, the producers reading it were just like, well, killer, you got it. But he gave it the name silence in heaven, which is a reference to the book of revelations. When there's a small, there's a short period of silence in heaven. And he was thinking it was weird because I think it's 30 minutes of silence. And he's like, that's about the time it takes for an ICBM at that time to travel across the world. And interestingly, he also said it was a hint that we're not getting help from, from above during something like this. And then he turned it in and everyone was really excited. They're like, wow, this is an amazing script, but silence in heaven. What the fuck kind of name is that? What does that mean? And I like that these people were so invested in this, that they're interviewing the writer now. Here, decades later, and he's still fucking pissed that they changed his title. He's like, my title was amazing, and the producers are like, no, the day after, like, if we we gotta sell, we gotta sell people on this idea. Like, we, we can't, we don't have time to explain silence in heaven. When we tell you we're gonna show you a nuclear war movie, and the title's the day after, you know exactly what you're getting. And then there is this remarkable, I don't know, like ten minute section in the middle of this doc on how they did the effects. They're like, we had no CGI. Everything had to be done like in camera, in front of the camera, or literally handmade. They were also in an all-out war with the ABC Standards and Practices Department and the censors about, you know, we don't want you to show anyone burned. <laughs> we don't want to show anyone blowing up. We don't want to show anyone on fire. And they're like, uh... This is a nuclear war movie. There's an incredible moment where they come to the main producer um, at the end and they they um, ask him the White House, the actual White House, Ronald Reagan's White House sends a message to ABC two days before the movie is about to air and say, we demand all these edits because they wanted some of the violent things taken out. The White House. Ronald Reagan screamed in the movie with, with his wife, Nancy, in the White House and was shaken and depressed after watching it. Um, but they send a message to the producer saying, we want these edits. And his response is, fuck off. But this sequence about the effects is mind-blowing. And to a movie lover, like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, the way they turned 
the town Lawrence, Kansas, where they were filming into like a post-apocalyptic scene. Real, real downtown Lawrence, Kansas, like real Main Street. They they shipped in debris and burnt cars and they set fire to like mannequins. They blew up actual Kansas farmers barns. They would go knock on the door and be like, we're from ABC. We want to blow up your barn. And then most remarkable of all, they couldn't get the mushroom clouds right. And they were figuring out, you know, they were trying to figure it out. I mean, this is you. This is what the day after is about. These got to look good. And, you know, the day after day, week after week passed. And the special effects people were getting messages like, uh, what's going on? And then one day they come in and they show footage of the mushroom cloud they're going to add to the the background to make it look like nuclear wars breaking out and everyone in the room's jaws drop and they're like oh my god that's amazing how'd you do it and they're like well we were at lunch <laughs> and we were putting some uh we had a clear glass with coffee and we put some cream in it and i watched the cream kind of drop into the glass and spread out i'm like that's it so we took it back up to the lab did, did drop some cream and some uh, in some liquids and then flipped it upside down. And there's your mushroom cloud. They're like, what? <laughs> Genius. But in a soulless era of CGI, and I'm not, I mean, there are, you know, artists with CGI and great CGI, but just this like roll your sleeves up and get effects done kind of, and the pressure of having no way to digitally do it. You, you got to pull it off in real life is just it. It, it, it almost brought tears to my eyes of joy that people were this good at their jobs. And then meanwhile, imagine how it feels for the people making this movie because they keep bringing the footage back and they keep just nailing it. They've got thousands of extras re recruited from local towns in Kansas City or around or sorry, around Kansas um, who weren't actors at all. Just being d done up in like the, the sickest like nuclear post nuclear makeup, just like skin dropping off raging wounds everyone just standing around you know from midtown america hollywood comes to town is blowing up your city and and painting you with all this uh disgusting makeup and then they bring the footage back and everyone looks at it uh at the dailies and they're like this is too good <laughs> we're never gonna get this out of air no one's ever gonna see this movie and then the reason it went from a two-day four-hour movie to three is they just couldn't sell any ads on this thing no one wanted to be associated with it. The government was against it. Like I said, the White House screened it. I mean, the Reagan's White Reagan was watching movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Back to the Future for real in the White House. He was not in the mood for the day after. And then amazingly, somehow they get this movie to air and they interviewed the producer. I think it was like literally the weekend that this thing was coming out and they were like, you are de dedicating three hours of prime time, your most expensive. You're going to take like a, I think they said $7 million loss on no ads, no ads being sold, sold at any reasonable prices on your network to inflict this thing on the American public. Have you ever considered pulling it? And the producer just kept saying, this is going to air on TV. It reminded me of, when Bill Belichick got his Patriots got slaughtered and he was, you know, angry and embarrassed 
And they kept interviewing him at the press conference, trying to ask him, like, what went wrong, what went wrong? And he kept going, we're on to Cincinnati. We're on to Cincinnati. He wouldn't answer any question with anything but we're on to Cincinnati. And the producer here was getting so much hell from so many different angles that he just ended up on this one line. It's going to air on TV. This thing's going to be on the air. So finally, it comes out. Almost every adult American watches it at the same time. And the country is shook. Like, absolutely shook. The scenes in here of the reactions of viewers to this thing. Oh, my God. It's it's like it almost really happened. And it's so eerie. Like, at, at towards the end of this, after the, the day after airs, um, they go to the town where it was primarily filmed. This Lawrence, Kansas. And there are people talking about, there's like little kids who are like, I just watched my entire fifth grade class get nuked. And the town is so upset and proud because they participated in it and they couldn't even process their emotions. They didn't even know what they were. So it's so spooky. They, they hold a spontaneous vigil the night after it airs. And like almost the whole town turns out. I mean, it's not a big town, right? And the mayor shows up and they ask the mayor to make a speech. And he's like, I didn't even know what to say. I'm just looking out in this crowd. It's dark. Everyone is dead quiet. There's all these candles. It looks like, you know, the scene from Gone Girl. And it was like they were, it, it's, I think it's the closest I've ever seen people to experiencing attending their own funeral. It's like a nuclear holocaust really hit this town and they were still there to sort of react to it afterwards. And amazingly, even after the day after aired, it kept going. So the day after ends and ABC felt compelled. I mean, what are you going to put on after you scare the hell out of uh, the wealthiest country on earth at the time, right? Like, um, so they had a, a panel discussion. It was kind of like they used to do with The Walking Dead, with that The Talking Dead. They would have a panel, and except for this panel, <laughs> instead of The Talking Dead, they had like Henry Kissinger and Carl Sagan and like all these eminent people, like former Secretary of Defense McNamara. Like the equivalent today would be if you aired something and all the country watched it and was terrified of it. And then they had a two hour discussion afterwards with like Neil deGrasse Tyson and like Anderson Cooper. And I don't know, like the head of the Pentagon. And they were just there to explain it to everyone afterwards. So they hold this incredible panel discussion. Um, and people are so upset and terrified. And it's, it's like they all got like this cold glass of water thrown in their faces. Just really remarkable stuff. The day after scared more of the country at, at the same time than maybe has ever happened in history. And even though it's not strictly horror, man, I felt like it was a great watch for October. Next, we're going to talk about Stuart Gordon's film Dagon from 2001. This might be the best known. It's just on the edge, probably, of hidden gems. I know a lot of horror fans have at least heard of this. Um, there's two reasons I'm including it here, um, besides the fact that it got a lot of votes, is that one is, it, because H.P. Lovecraft has become so um, problematic uh, over time, it, it's 
the Lovecraft mythos and movies that are set there aren't going to get more known. They're only going to get less known as time goes on. So even if Dagon hits some kind of like high water mark of being known, it's definitely on the downward slope of it. And then the second thing is, as my usual benchmark for the podcast is in the community where there's, you know, more than half a million people lurking, is anyone ever talking about this movie? And I haven't seen a post about Dagon in more than a year so it's definitely not like in the conversation, at least for us. So I'm going to shine some light on it because I absolutely love this movie. And I love Stuart Gordon. Now, Dagon is not perfect. It's pretty, pretty legendary for those who have known it or seen it, even the ones who like it, for having some special effects that did not age particularly well, which I think is true. Um, it's only a $4 million budget. Movie, So even though that's not like a micro budget by any means, there's not a lot. But I think Dagon almost looks too good in other parts. So it never gets any pass for like the places where it looks shoddy because people feel like it feels like a major feature almost in a way. It feels bigger. And, you know, when you think about like Get Out was about four million dollars, I think Jordan Peele's movie. Um, but when you do movies on that budget, the filmmakers are usually really clever in that they keep it a very localized, right? It's so like small cast and then, you know, simple locations indoors a lot. Dagon ha had the foolish ambition to take the full Lovecraft to make it big, sweeping, to do world building. Um, and it just feels large. And, you know, on that budget, um, you know, I'm willing to give it a little bit of a pass in the couple places where the special effects um, don't look particularly great. There are other places where they're either practical or they just look really good. It's mainly like the tentacle action that's pretty iffy at some points. But horror is really gotten like ensembleized a lot, right? Like when you think about the movies this year that were making a splash, like Talk to Me or uh, Scream 6 or last voyage of the Demeter or whatever. These are, you know, you're meeting a lot of characters. Dagon is basically a two character piece. And it even amazingly kind of under the radar does the psycho get rid of the main character thing um, with Barbara. One of the two characters we're really spending any kind of significant time with who vanishes like a third of the way into the movie and doesn't come back till near the end. So we're just spending a lot of our time with one character, with Paul versus the town and versus the monsters. And I like that minimalistic feel sometimes. It's pretty relaxing to just be hanging out with one or two characters. Even like I said, this is not like Night of the Living Dead. This is a big sweeping space. It's a whole town that we're running around in here. The town has got like, this is one of the joys of the movie. One of the reasons I find this so rewatchable is the town would make a great haunt. It's got kind of like a watery Silent Hill-ish vibe to me. Um, and oh my God, the rain and the water in this movie, my skin wrinkles just watching it. There's this really sinister character we meet pretty early in the movie and we can tell something's wrong about him, but you can't really tell why. And then he points some, somewhere in a direction and you look and you see that his fingers are kind of webbed. 
And I remember I, not not just the first time I saw Dagon, but every time I've watched Dagon, I was like, oh, that would, yeah, but it makes sense. That would happen to me too if I lived in a town. It's just everything is wet all the time. The music is incredibly haunting in this movie. And the relationships, even though, like I said, we have very few characters, the relationship between Paul and Barbara is great. There's a great kind of, they're like a true partnership. I mean, he's making money, somehow investing something in the stock market or something like that. They're on a boat. They're, you know, in this beautiful Spain. They don't know that everything's about to go to hell. Um, and um, she, he's like making money, but then he gives her credit. He's like, you found the investors to get this thing going. So they have like a, the, a kind of like, I don't want to say it. it's just they, they, they have that feeling that they could finish each other's sentences in a way. And Paul is, you know, let's face it. He's a pretty um, primitive guy, not in a not, like he's he, do, he doesn't have a lot of things he wants to do except make money. He, he, he obviously has trouble relaxing. She throws his laptop into the ocean because he keeps looking at it on their beautiful vacation. Um so they, you know, they—they're also funny, which is cool. But he has this weird tick where he keeps saying two possibilities in response to any kind of situation that comes up. Like, there's two possibilities: my stock goes up or goes down. You know, if the the boat is in a storm, there's two possibilities: we ride it out or we sink. And his brain is is kind of mapping, right? It's kind of a cold way of of operating. But he seems like so in control or wants to be that it's great when the situation just spins into complete chaos, watching all of his priors just melt away. There's a twist to this movie that I won't give away, but it's really fun on a rewatch once you know exactly what's happening because there are little clues sprinkled without. There are nice little touches that, you know, Stuart Gordon was so smart like there's a there's a part where they're taking this small boat back and forth between where their boat was caught up on a, on a reef, and um, as he's lo as Paul's loading into the boat, he catches his hand on a fish hook, and this fish hook is dug into his hand, dug into his skin. Oh man, I could feel it. Like this is it was really well done. Looked like it really happened. Um, but just him being caught on that hook is uh, kind of perfect for where this movie's headed. And then there's just like the excellent parts that that you want in any kind of like fun sided horror movie. It's really funny in parts. The parts where Paul's trying to hold off the inhabitants of Imboka, the city he's in, when he's trapped in the hotel and he has to like <laughs> screw screw a deadbolt onto a door before they get up the stairs and get to the door. It's a race against time, and it's absolutely hilarious, and it's completely futile. <laughs> a lot of stuff this guy does is completely futile, um, but there's also like a hilarious scene, and I don't think I've honestly ever seen this in a movie, although it's probably what would happen like eight times out of ten. He tries to hotwire hot a car, like the only car in Mboka, this sinister like black car, um, he sneaks in and he's trying to hotwire it. And when I was first watching this movie, I was like, oh, he's a tech guy. <laughs> like, no problem. And all he does is set off the horn and alert the whole town to his location. And they all rush the car and he has to dive out. I think it's the only failed hotwiring of a car I've ever seen in a movie. And I liked the honesty. And then the gore is pretty sick in parts. There's a scene in this movie 
We just talked about the movie The Black Cat, the Lugosi and Karloff classic, where the censors at the time in the early 30s were like, you can't even show a silhouette of Karloff getting skinned alive. <laughs> like It's going to upset the audience. Well, if you were able to just show everything <laughs> about that scene, that's the scene you would get in Dagon. The few other characters we get, like Uxia, the queen of Mboka, is fantastic. Um, particularly great is the legendary Francisco Rabal as Ezekiel. Um, he's re responsible for like the biggest flashback scene in the movie, which is also pretty awesome. Raquel Morano has a ton of charisma as Barbara. So I, I love this, you know, not perfect, but if a movie is going to have flaws, I'd rather they be flaws of ambition and not flaws of just being lazy or just being a cash grab or just being <laughs> incompetent. Um, I think the places where Dagon falls down, it falls down because it tried to be a little too big. And because it's spooky season, I'm going to be seeing a lot of movies in the fog or within woods. Um, and to have kind of this watery, uh, urban, rundown atmosphere uh, is a nice change in the, in the mix. Next up, we have a suggestion from one of our subscribers. Thank you for being in the subscriber group and supporting uh, making this thing go. Uh, David Joshua Smith voted for The Signal. He said, I'm a fan of this forgotten micro-budget apocalyptic anthology. Scary, darkly funny, and soulful. Now, this was another movie that I hadn't seen. I hadn't even heard of this movie. Um, and I could not believe. I was so excited when I looked it up and got ready to watch it and saw that David Bruckner of The Ritual and Nighthouse fame, two of my favorite recent horror movies, um, was a director of one of the three segments. So The Signal is from 2007, I believe, and it's a horror film told in three parts from three perspectives in which a mysterious transmission that turns people into killers invades every cell phone, radio, and television. Um, this had the crazies vibes for sure, but I really liked seeing an anthology told this way. It was a little bit more of like a Rashomon effect and not these like disconnected or th thinly connected stories like you get in a lot of anthology films. This movie is really fun, really bloody. And you know what's cool is I, I thought going into it that so we don't have a lot of characters here. We have Maya, her husband, Lewis. Those are like the primary characters and Ben. So Maya's having an affair on Lewis with Ben for the first time. And they agree that they're going to get out of town. They're going to meet at this train terminal, Terminal 13, and get out of town the next day. But then, of course, all hell breaks loose, sort of like Dawn of the Dead style. Um, and the the rest of the movie is is Maya trying to get, uh, or Ben, try, either of them trying to get to this terminal to, to see if the other one's there. And Lewis is trying to stop them, and the whole rest of the world is uh, killing each other. <laughs> right? So... But the what the surprise to me was Lewis's character was really cool. Um, he wasn't playing an over the top necessarily like Jack Torrance kind of crazy because he's not aware that he's crazy. Like he's hallucinating things, but and he has like this amped up urge to kill that he's getting from the signal. But he thinks he's acting rationally. And that's kind of like a spooky thing to portray on screen when you think 
that you're just perfectly fine. Everyone else is acting weird, but you're actually the craziest, most murderous uh, person around. The scene where he he unleashes on his friends the first killings is just really brutal, but he does it in such a um, like offended kind of way. Like, why are you making me do this to you when he they're not like he's not really being provoked uh, or definitely not being provoked to the, the level he's going to to go to. But he doesn't know that. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be the best character in the movie. I'm going to really, you know, follow this. This is going to make the movie for me. But then this guy, Clark, shows up. And to me, Clark, who's uh, played by Scott uh, Poitras, he steals the whole movie to me. This guy is so good as I think he's the landlord and he's just trying to be helpful. And he's also kind of going over the line, but he's not as far across the line as Lewis is, but he's just way more laid back about it. And, and somehow just really, really charming. Like he's one of those few characters you see in like an apocalyptic movie when you're like, you know, I just, I would just stick with this guy. (laughs) I just want this guy, this guy around. Um, he is tons of fun. So, the signal is really spooky. I love that it incorporates Joy Division, which is amazing. Um, and it it really punches above its weight for its tiny budget. Another movie I love, I put this actually in the picture on the post of the main page because I think it's an incredible hidden horror gem. Um, and it's called Burning Bright. It's from 2010, starring Brianna Evigan, Garrett Dillahunt, and Meatloaf, of all people. Um, and it's it's about a uh, uh, the attempts of a young mom and or sorry a young woman and her uh, younger brother to ward off a hungry t- tiger trapped in a house with them during a hurricane. So it's definitely got like crawl vibes, even though it way pretty predates crawl. Um, but th- this is just a really fun stripped down movie. Um, the atmosphere is great. You're basically in one location, which is. It's really cool when you can pull that off. And there's just this glorious sequence in this movie where the the woman who's trying to, Brianna is trying to ward off the tiger. She is um, trapped in a laundry chute with the tiger below her and her trying to get purchase on like the slick metal of the laundry chute and go up while the tiger's trying to get at her from below. And tigers are, like, really intelligent killers. So she's playing chess. She's definitely, like, equally matched in terms of just survival versus prey versus predator kind of thing. Just the human advantage is all gone when you're not armed and you're just trapped in a small place. And all the tiger has to do is figure out, are you going up or are you going down? And where do I want to be when you figure it out, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just a incredibly tense well-executed scene. Another one of our subscribers suggested The Night Eats the World. I really wanted to see this movie. I'd heard about it, and I didn't have time before recording this, um, but I loved the trailer, so I'm gonna. I'm really excited to get around to watch that. Thank you to Umberto for suggesting it. There was a great vote and a comment that accompanied a vote. So um, let me just read you the comment. It goes, it's from Tim. He says... One of my favorites that gets no love and attention is Ghost Story from 1981. It's based on a novel by Peter Straub. The casting has greats such as Fred Astaire and John Houseman. I will admit the plot is a little inconsistent, but the story is still good overall. It is a classic revenge story 
where Alice plays the titular spirit who takes revenge on the men and the children who wronged her. I feel the special effects still hold up and Alice gives a performance that is chilling. The movie is not terrifying, but is scary in the way that hammer horror can be frightening. This movie terrified me as a child, though. I watched this last week after 15 years, and it's still one of my favorites. So I really like Ghost Story. I really like the effects in Ghost Story. Um, but, but I love the novel. Peter Straub recently passed away, which is really sad. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of his work. So anytime I get a chance to... Not much of his work ever made it to screen, unfortunately. Um, but because this one did, man, definitely worth a watch. There was a decent amount of voting for a movie called They. It's a Wes Craven Presents movie. I haven't seen this movie and didn't have time to get it. But Rich said, no one ever talks about They. It starts out intense with the opening scene and has a final scene that is unforgettable. From what I gather of the movie, it's sort of like a lights out-ish kind of uh, premise. So that'll be interesting because I love movies that look like that. There were a decent amount of votes for Summer of 84. I feel like that movie is pretty well known. I know I don't see a lot of talk about it. I do see some, but I saw a lot of talk about it when it came out, which wasn't so long ago. But yeah, I mean, Summer of 84 is also not perfect, but I've watched it a couple times and it's it's I remember a ton of it. And I think you know, memory is oftentimes like the best critic, right? Like it's what you remember, what really sticks with you is a sign of something you really enjoyed. And I remember huge, huge chunks of this movie and it's got a really no, no holds barred um, ending. And I, I admire the, the grimness of where this movie manages to go. And I also like that the plot and the characters get, didn't get too cartoonish. It could have been so easy to have none of these people feel real and just all feel like, you know, stereotypes or placeholders for the plot. But um, that doesn't happen here. And the movie's a lot quieter and less showy than I expected. Um, so I really like Summer of 84. And there were also a lot of votes for The Girl with All the Gifts, which I feel like is kind of in the Summer of 84 category. I'm not sure how much of a how hidden of hidden horror gems they are. But if they are relatively unknown, then they are great choices. And then I'm going to finish with the movie I'm going to watch tonight because I'm really excited about this. There were some votes for a movie called Anguish from 1987 starring Zelda Rubenstein of uh, Poltergeist fame. And the synopsis of this is a controlling mother uses telepathic powers to send her middle-aged son on a killing spree. I came across this movie when I was recording a previous episode a few months back um, that I think I called to be treasures. Uh, and I never got around to watching it. And then I forgot, <laughs> like it, I don't know where I put my list and it kind of vanished. And I was so excited to see it come back here in the voting. Cause when I saw the poster, I was like, Oh yeah, that movie. But a lot of people who are regular longtime followers of horror weekly were in on the voting on this one. And I trust their taste a hundred percent. So can I get, I'm going to wait to watch it. So that's it. That's our latest slate of hidden horror gems. Um, thank you to everyone who voted and commented and reacted. A special thank you to our subscribers. And if you want to join the subs subscriber group to support uh, Horror Weekly and help it grow, I'll put a link in the show notes. You're basically joining a small community for less than $3 a month 
um, where you have direct access to the podcast. You can make suggestions for episodes. Um, you get priority for um, if you're doing the voting, like I'm going to mention, like I did in this episode as much as I can. Um, so look for that link there if you're interested. Don't have any reviews to report, unfortunately, but um, I do have a, the rating news is we went to 4.9 on Spotify. I've been pushing for Apple because we dropped there. And while I wasn't even looking, we rose up on Spotify, which is amazing. You have no idea how good that makes me feel. So I see you doing it. Thank you so much for the help. I'm getting real excited as we creep closer and closer to 5.0 and we creep closer and closer to Halloween. So that's it for this week. Until next Wednesday, have a great horror week.